on the record from this point on. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode uh, six of the Money Badgers podcast. Jeremy, Sean, Paul, welcome. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. How y'all doing today? Doing all right. I'm I'm an old man. I'm a touch sleepy. Um, (laughs) Not going to lie, but doing great overall. January's over. The market's up. I mean, what more could you ask for besides warmer temperatures? Yeah, that's for sure. My yeah. my my recording studio is not very warm. Yeah, it's uh for for y'all who don't know, we record in Wisconsin. I don't think we make any secret of that. And uh going through a bit of a uh polar vortex here right now. Uh, I believe our high today was negative 1. So, yeah. So Weather's cold, but stocks are hot, gentlemen. So let's see. We've got a couple of things. We got to um, do a recap of last week's episode. Last week's episode was actually a big one. We uh, we made our first stock pick. So I guess let's jump right into that. Um, we chose uh, PayPal right before that sucker jumped too. So Vic, shout out to you. Nice pick. Yeah, absolutely. He. Uh... He made a good compelling argument uh, to get into it, and I really think that the the crypto markets have helped them significantly. That's been a, a real appealing feature for PayPal, mostly because a lot of people do friends and family on their transactions, which have no fees. But when, you, when you're buying and selling that crypto, they're getting you every time regardless. And I think that's been a huge, uh, huge source of income for them, especially in this last quarter. Yeah, they smashed earnings. They, they absolutely smashed it. And the awesome thing about PayPal is... They own two of the three most popular mobile payment solutions. So, yeah, that was a great pick and just so excited to see where we take the portfolio from here. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's see. We've, we've got a little bit of financial news that maybe we can jump into as well uh, before we get into picks. And then obviously uh, this week in business history with Jeremy. How about Bitcoin popping? I was – so I, all right. So I'll say this about myself and Bitcoin. I was a naysayer just about the entire history of Bitcoin up until probably about six months ago. And now I, I'm way too late to the game, I feel, to jump in now. But I get it. I think Bitcoin's not going anywhere anytime soon. It It just crested – or it's just about to crest but on its own a trillion dollar market cap. So when you put that into terms of, you know, a commodity, uh, silver is, is at one point five trillion. It's almost as valuable as as silver or the highest high cap stocks on the exchange. So I'm, I'm I have to believe in it now. Uh, it's not going anywhere and. I think a lot of this is the the Iron Man Elon bump. It's weird and exciting to see what's happening. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've uh, I've been following Bitcoin for a while. I've never really invested much into it, but back I want to say 2013 or so, I actually did some mining back when it was actually reasonably affordable and it was kind of like a fun little project. Uh, I was actually doing mining with some with some ASIC miners and a Raspberry Pi, real low level. Hmm. Uh, but at the time it was actually generating enough Bitcoin that it pretty much paid for the power that it was consuming. So a wash, there's actually you know a little sh- shameless self plug here, explorevm.com. So I built a 
built, so I built a Bitcoin miner. You can read about it there. Um, <laughs> but with that, like, you know, it's, it, I, I had a little, little bit, like, I don't even remember how much I had. I sold that a long time ago. I haven't really gotten back into it. Just kind of watched it from the sidelines. I have played a little bit with a few of the other coins, not Doge, but Litecoin and Ethereum. And actually, I just recently sold off all of my Litecoin and Ethereum at a, at a, Nice little profit, nothing too huge. They've not been on that same like meteoric rise as Bitcoin, which at the time of recording, Coindesk shows it at $46,323, which is just absurd given what, three months ago it was at $16,000. Well, and and, and five years ago, I'm making this number up right now, but it was at barely $1,000, if that. And then 10 years ago, it, it was pennies. I mean, it's just, and, and the thing is, it's, I just, I'm such a novice to Bitcoin. I just, I still don't even understand it. Like, like the U.S. dollar is backed by the, the future prosperity of the U.S. economy. Like, I understand that. But what is Bitcoin actually based <laughs> around or backed by other than speculation? Yeah, I, I again, I, I don't pretend to understand it. Um, I played with the technology years ago. Um, honestly, we could probably find a, a guest to come on and kind of talk about what it is and where it's going to fall. Because now you've got, you know, Tesla, like you said, Iron Man, Elon, um, Tesla's out there buying, what was it? 1.5 billion in Bitcoin. And they're going to start taking payments for cars in Bitcoin. That's actually been slowly gaining traction in other industries. And, you know, very low key companies were taking Bitcoin as payments. But now it's with, I think that's probably the biggest name we've heard out there is tesla and with that announcement it's the, the big shoot up this week for sure mm-hmm. well, yeah and i remember i, I want to say it was two three four years ago somewhere in there Newegg started taking uh bitcoin for payment and i think at the time that was one of the biggest but um you know i'll be honest the first thing i i thought kind of half jokingly when i heard elon was buying 1.5 billion in bitcoin for tesla was wow that's probably the largest ransomware attack ever <laughs> um, you know, not serious, right? The, just as you know, kind of a kind of a funny funny side thought. But I have the same concerns about like crypto, right? Like, what is what is really backing this, right? Like, what's really driving that value besides people saying, "Hey, this is valuable," right? There, there's there's nothing behind it, and at some point, like. I have this fear that somebody's going to be left holding the bag mm-hmm. and, you know, that value, like everybody's going to exit it for something else and there's going to be nothing there. And, right. you know, somebody is going to end up with nothing after investing in it. The other concern I have about Bitcoin, though, really has more to do with what it takes now to generate an actual Bitcoin, right? And how much electricity is actually used in, in creating this, this cryptocurrency. You know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, green solutions and, and green energy and, and doing things to, to help the environment in a, in a lot of spaces. And then on the flip side of that, right, where it's like everything we do in other areas is completely offset by, you know, Bitcoin mining and mm-hmm. the amount of energy that goes into it. So, you know, th- those are kind of the two concerns I have about this. Not saying that it's not valuable, you know, right? There, there's obviously some intrinsic value to this. You know, people are, are deciding this is valuable or, or that this is something worth investing in. But, you know, yeah, just my thoughts. No, great, great thoughts. Um, yeah, Paul, a question for you when you used to mine. 
when when you get when you successfully mine, do you do, do, would you get an entire coin or do you get fractions of a coin? Oh no, I was. This is um, it was absolutely like tiny, tiny fractions. Um, okay, like I was part of a pool that was mining a single coin. So when it was cracked, like I got zero, 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 like whatever out of it. Like again, tiny, tiny amounts. They were I don't even remember the specs at this point. That was eight years ago. Um, on these ASICs, they were like twenty five or ten bucks on eBay. Sounds about I, right. Yeah. <laughs> moved, up, moved up in quantity or like quality to ones that were fifty bucks, and actually made more money selling them secondhand because that's when everything exploded the first time, popularity wise. And it was funny because uh, you know on TimeHop, you know I've got it connected to my Twitter account, and from that that era recently, I just saw my my tweet that was like, Bitcoin just hit like three hundred. There's talk it might hit 500. We think it can keep going this high. Just like, ah, oh, if I still had those, you know, just, you know, for hindsight, it's always 2020 for everybody. Right. Yeah. Just to think about where it's at now and where it came from. And, and, and begs the question then, does a, a prudent investor slash investing club bake crypto into our portfolio now? Does it make sense to actually consider and do that? I mean... There's a lot of there's a lot of gains to be had. It's a lot of risk, but we also right. we you know in our charter we talk about eighty twenty eighty percent long term and twenty percent at you know short term or quick gains. So mm-hmm. if that's if that's something we we decide to look at for our twenty percent, I don't see why not. We just mm-hmm. have to completely understand that risk that it moves so fast. Yeah, I guess that that you know that's one of the problems when it comes to a, a club like this is we 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 don't move at at the speed of light. And really, I had this thought earlier today, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Do you think the the, the stock market as a whole and trading in general is starting to demand quicker, faster, more bold returns? You know, just like what we're seeing with GameStop and crypto. Do you think the old way of the markets is is boring? To the new investors, I would I would think to the younger investors, yes. I mean, there. This is going to make me sound like I'm ancient, but there's investors <laughs> and then there's traders, and the traders are the ones seeing all of the big news right now with making you know the big moves and doing the squeeze. Um, but there's still a lot of people out there, even you know older generations, our generation, younger generations that do still adhere to long term, like getting your your eight percent a year or whatever instead of trying to milk 48 percent in 24 hours and sell but yeah i mean it's 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 flashy because the market's been on such an incredible bull run for the last several years that people just assume like so this younger generation coming in and getting into the robin hoods and the other apps where you can start to trade almost instantly it's stocks always go up <laughs> right it's hard to you know it's hard to deny that but you know, all of us in this call have been around the markets long enough. You know, we recall, you know, the 08 crash and the financial um, crash of that era and the, the Great Recession. And I don't really remember the one from the 80s. I was way too young, I think. But again, like th- these these crashes, they happen. These market corrections, even last year when, when the Dow dropped to what? It was like 16,000 when all yeah. was said and done. I mean, it, it happens. You've just got to, if you're riding that lightning to get the uh, that, that short-term high gains, you've got to hopefully understand that risk. Oh, and I think there's two things to think about here with that too, right? Like from, from an individual investor perspective, like one of the hardest things I'm having as a somewhat new investor is kind of getting that patience and getting into that mindset of, I need to be looking at this from the long, from, from a long haul or a long-term investment 
point of view, especially coming in now, right on the, you know, right as the whole GameStop squeeze happened, where it's like, oh, hey, I can make tons of cash real quick. How do I catch this lightning in a bottle again? And then having to, you know, have the mental discipline to say, yeah, that's not going to happen. That was, you know, a fluke. It may happen again, but I shouldn't expect that out of every stock. But the other piece of that is, you know, from that point of, you know, faster turnaround, faster, faster growth, right? I think that's just a general reflection of the market as a whole to begin with, right? If you think about these large investment firms, hedge funds, they own a you know, their share of ownership is significant in the companies they invest in. And every, and they keep demanding, you know, more profit, more return faster. And, you know, going back, I don't even know how long, probably since at least the 80s, there's been the, the shift in companies from long-term planning to what's the next quarter going to bring. Right. And so it's not just what our individual investors expecting, but what is the market as a whole expecting? And it's always faster or it's more faster and so forth. Like keep that growth going. Yeah. In, in information, information moves exponentially faster and that's only going to continue as a trend. Cool. You know, the last thing that I kind of wanted to mention about Bitcoin before we, we totally um, jump off of that is I love how much I see a similarity between Bitcoin and tulip mania. Do you guys know what tulip mania is? Yeah. Jeremy, maybe this would be a good time for you to cut in. I don't know. I I, I don't want to step on your coattails, but I know uh, <laughs> you love the Dutch. Uh, <laughs> and the yes, tulips. that's true. Yeah, the tulips are uh, spectacular. And um, I guess if anyone doesn't know what tulip mania is, it's when uh, the Dutch started buying, selling, and trading tulip bulbs at ridiculous prices. It was uh, it's capitalism run amok. And uh, I think there were uh, several individuals left holding the bag, like Sean said, and the world has tried to uh, not let that happen again, but it clearly it still does. It's considered to be the first market bubble in, in modern capitalism. And at its, its height, folks were buying a single tulip bulb for several years salary which is just looney tunes when you think about it but you they know they can turn that around and sell it for a four year salary <laughs> that was their theory right that's the thing you know i'm i'm not i'm not saying bitcoin is the same thing cuz like i said earlier i i i have to believe in it now it's it's showing that it's long term um imagine 200 years from now do you think folks will, on a on a hollow cast a hologram cast will be talking about back in the 2020s when when folks were wrapped up in cryptomania um you just you you, you got to wonder if it if it has lasting power um, right something oh, that's I, I, a common tool to them in the future to us was some freakish get rich algorithm that we were we were all using to try to uh, make extra money oh i'd love to go like 200 years in the future and just like look at what we've learned and you know because you, you you look 200 years in the past like oh they were so far behind or what was all this just just to see what the future thinks of us right now as we sit in our four separate homes on real-time video and audio chat doing podcasts on devices that didn't exist six, uh, 30 years ago you know it's right right so let's see what other topics do we want to talk about today i think marijuana popped a little bit and I think we we wanted to to dive into that. So I think ever since Biden 
really was was elected. That's one of those sectors that had started to jump right after that. And I think that that trend is definitely continuing, specifically, you know, in, in our state, there's there's talks of legalization. If if that will happen, who, who knows? Um, it's it's going to be a tough battle, but there again, I think a sector like marijuana is something we can't overlook. I think it's mm-hmm. something that even a conservative group would would have in their portfolio if they're interested to make money. Yeah, I, I you know, I've I've not really followed the the sector or the grouping, whatever you want to call it, because for the longest time, they were, those stocks were just losing money. They were just not successful. Clearly, like attitudes and. Um, legislation is going to start changing, so that's something I've clearly got. To, I've got to do some research on on my own. And even while we were getting ready for this call, I was trying to find why they popped. You know, in the last couple of days here, you know, I'm seeing one of the companies, Tilray, um, has a UK distribution agreement, and uh, Grow Pharma or uh, Tilray's UK distribution agreement with Grow Pharma and earnings from Canopy Growth are some of the drivers today. Just today, so there's there, there's logic behind it. It's not just you know, prevailing winds. It's not just, we think that, you know, in two years, this administration is going to put forth a legislation. It, you know, businesses are starting to come around and more and more we're, we're seeing that. So certainly, at least in my opinion, warrants more uh, investigation. Yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing the market is being created and evolving before our eyes. It's pretty interesting. We, I, I, uh, I have a VR headset and was playing a uh, a game with some folks from Canada last week, and we got on talking about about marijuana and you know how British Columbia kind of was the first place to legalize it. Well, they're so ahead of the game. They have it, they have like an app, a phone app that you order on. They they have home delivery set up already, and it really makes me think that if drone delivery ever becomes a thing, marijuana will be the first thing to be utilized in drone delivery. It's an expensive item and it's very lightweight. So I would see that and, and medications as the first test bed for, for drone home delivery. But I was just floored by the fact that it's, it's legal to have home delivery of marijuana in Canada. Cool. All right. I think, uh, Jeremy, you wanted to take over and do a uh, This Week in Capitalism, correct? Go upstairs. Yeah. My dog's behind me dropping ass. Yeah. Yeah. This Week in Business History. Yeah. History. The board game Monopoly was released this week in 1935. February 7th, 1935, the Parker Brothers Board Game Company released what would go on to become one of the most successful board games in the world. And this game, Monopoly, is a microcosm of the capitalistic system. It was the game that first introduced the concept of this system to to many kids over the course of its almost 100-year history. In case uh, you've uh, forgotten or you've never played Monopoly, the gist of it is each player gets a token and they must roll a dice to move it a die to move it clockwise around a board labeled with the names of the streets of Atlantic City, New Jersey. You inherit some money, and you get moving. Your job is to strategically buy up properties and utilities so that you can charge other players rent when they unfortunately land on your already owned property. This goes on and on, and you attempt to increase increase your rent faster than the other players are able to pay, while eventually your monopoly is complete and you are collecting money from the other players faster than they can generate it, and you win. The game's origin is from long before 1935 when the Parker Brothers purchased the rights to use the game, 
It started life as a uh, somewhat different game back in 1903. Uh, it was created by an anti-monopolist. I don't know if you guys remember the old uh, robber barons and stuff back at the turn of the last century. They were uh, they were in the headlines all the time. Anti-monopolist uh, Liz McGee created a game which she hoped would explain the single tax theory of Henry George. It was intended as an educational tool and not to be entertaining. <laughs> and I believe it was called the Landlord's Game. The Landlord's Game. That was my next sentence. Oh, I'm sorry. It's fine. No, it's great. It was published. It was published, self-published by Ms. McGee. In 1906, uh, she created two sets of rules, the uh, anti-monopoly and monopoly. Anti-monopoly taught, uh, you know, cooperation and like not charging rent at higher, always increasing rate until you squeeze them into the gutter. But <laughs> monopoly did. Well, some guy, I had his name. Oh, yeah. Charles Darrow was at a uh, at a luncheon and they played a little monopoly and he was enamored with the game and uh, went out and built his own version called Monopoly pretended that uh, the landlord's game didn't exist until Parker Brothers bought it and uh, the jig was up. They had to pay Lizzie McGee as well for the rights. They had to pay her $200 and they could not pass go. (laughs) (laughs) That's almost right. It was $500 and they got a get out of jail free card. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) You were close. You were close. 500 bones, man. Did she get ripped off? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I got some fun facts. <laughs> the first uh, tokens that you could use was the battleship, the boot, the cannon, the iron, the lantern, the purse, the race car, the rocking horse, the thimble, and top hat. Wow. Yeah. yeah if you pop ter- one up. I'm right? terrible at listening. What year did you say this was? 1935. Sorry, this I'm week in 1935 was the first, was the debut of the Parker Brothers Monopoly game in uh, every uh, corner store across the na- nation and and around the world. They they localized it to uh, whatever, you know, whatever the trashiest city in uh, whatever country the game was being sold in was the one that got the uh, the street job done. To oh, it. I didn't realize that. I thought it was Atlantic City for all, all around the world. I don't know. I was actually reading about the Dutch one, which takes place in Amsterdam. They um, that was done during um, World War Two, and it was separate yet similar to the uh, American one. I I do know, too, that um, the Soviets came out with their own version, which it was essentially communism on on a board game. So it was probably pretty boring. Um, (laughs) But I just find that funny that they came out with their own monopoly and it was, you know, Everybody pays $12 and gets a loaf of bread. <laughs> when Jeremy mentioned the, uh, the, the communal game, the, the, you know, the anti-monopoly game, that's the first thing I thought. I'm like, are they playing communism? <laughs> yeah, it was a little more like that. I, I didn't click to, to learn the rules, but I, I, I made an assumption that, yeah, it's a little, a little communism. It's, it's a, a Bernie Sanders-style play. <laughs> Big mittens. Yes, five hundred dollars uh, in nineteen thirty-five is the equivalent of nine thousand five hundred and six today. Wow! Well, also, board games were they a uh, were they as big of an industry as they are today? I don't know. I you know I bet I bet the Parker brothers were were an actual set of brothers back in those very days. shrewd. Yes. Well, in nineteen ninety-one, Parker Brothers was brought up, bought out by Hasbro, who realized that they had a cow they could milk. And in the past thirty years, they've released hundreds of variations. Versions of the games with different rules, different kinds of pieces, electronic doodads, various intellectual properties attached to it. Anything you can 
think of has been turned into a Monopoly game, any sort of a video game, TV show, book, movie. You know, I, I was going to say, when we can all get together in person again, it's been so long since I've played Monopoly, like legit le- Monopoly, that we should do it as an investing club and just have these mics going in the background. But I also don't want to immediately ruin our investing club by we all play Monopoly together. So. <laughs> I will definitely play. Well, maybe we can play Gentleman's Rules, where the uh, if you land on free parking, you get some money. There you go. We'll just do house rules of wherever it's located. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. That free parking space. I've played with people who say that you get $500 or something. That really stretches the game out a lot. The house rule, writing money. Yeah, the, the house rule I play by is like anything that would have to go into the center, right? Any any fees, any taxes, right? That goes into the center. You land on free parking. You get that. That can, The wrong person lands on that square and it turns the game around right away. Oh, that is true. Sure. And if you think about it, you That's know, correct. back in the 60s, 70s and, and beyond, you used to have to uh, stretch a board game out all night because that was your entertainment for the night. Now, mm-hmm. now you've got your your iPhones and your iWatches and your iPods, and uh, you know board <laughs> games don't need to last that long. <laughs> Good point, Bob. Although there is a there is a uh, iPad version of Monopoly that you can play with friends over oh, the awesome. internet. So, do you guys have a preferred piece? No, it's been far too long. You know, I always liked the thimble, but the thimble was actually retired. Uh, like 10 years ago now. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, simple came to mind, but also like the car. Car's pretty dope. That's a classic. That's always been there. I'm yeah. a battleship, battleship guy. Yeah, I've always been battleship. That's always Because it just kind of sails along the board. Top end. Oh, the, the new ones also have a T-Rex, I think. Yes, correct. Oh, well, <laughs> I, have to, I have to fight my son for that. <laughs> oh, the Scotty dog. That was a good one. That I think when I was younger, oh, yeah. I used to love that Scotty dog. All right, that Jeremy. Thing, not oh, stay up. Your, your homework <laughs> for next week's episode what is like what was the reasoning behind the selection of the pieces ooh interesting question i'm hey, sure someone knows other question did you do any homework on the um mcdonald's tie in and the how the mafia was actually running the monopoly game and nobody actually really won it during its entire existence i did do no homework on that at all but i did see a documentary about that a few weeks ago and I, it was pretty messed up. Yeah, it was, sure. it was a really good documentary on that. I've not seen it, though. It's worth the, it's worth the watch, I'd say. Is that on <laughs> HBO? No, I don't think so. I think it's on, uh, I think I saw it on Amazon Prime. Gotcha. I don't, I don't know if I had to pay for it. I Might haven't seen I think that's it. Million. Yeah, McMillions yeah, or something. Amazon. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't watched that either, but I heard of it. And uh, I really want to watch it because... Very interesting topic, and I read up on it when when people were talking about that documentary, and it legitimately was run by the mafia. It's very, very interesting that they saw the opportunity, they took it, and then they just ran with it for decades. Yeah, there was a full sting operation. That was the bulk of the episode. Wow. You know, you have to get all your ducks in a row if you're doing a real sting operation. You can't (laughs) just roll in there with your guns out willy-nilly. No. You definitely can't. Well, <laughs> yeah. cool. Any anything else for for this week in capitalism? No, that was that was the thing. Nice. And so, segments, Jeremy, I appreciate them. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun for me. I love history. Fun for all of us. 
Yeah, th- this was definitely a great one. And yeah, that McMillions documentary, it looks like it's on Prime Video. Good to know. I, I really want to catch that. And it, this just kind of jogged my memory about that. So yeah, nice nice work, Jeremy. Cool. Well, why don't we just steamroll right along uh, and let's let's roll into our picks for the week. I think, Paul, are you going to go first with yours? I am going to go first this week. So, what what sector did you have last week? At at the end of our episode, we didn't actually declare sectors, um, so we kind of pulled up the list. And I thought healthcare or related fields would be interesting. It's not anything I really know a lot about. Obviously, it's kind of been top of mind with everything going on in the world. So, not knowing where to start, I jumped into E Trade and I just went to a Scott uh, Scott scanner. Hello, a stock scanner, and I just kind of put in some criteria. And I, I went by whether or not they're listed as like buy and hold or positive outlook, as well as like a price point up to like a certain dollar amount. And then, you know, kind of looked at some with dividends, some without dividends. And after after looking around, one caught my eye um, that met the, the criteria. And it's a little known company called CVS. <laughs> so as of closing today, CVS, ticker symbol CVS. Um, is listed at uh, $73.49. Um, it was up 0.7% today. 52-week high of $77, 52-week low of $52. So, you know, we're right near near the top end of that range, but, you know, we're looking at it as strong buy, 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 long, bullish, uh, based on the, the bloggers, um, as well as, you know, looking, looking at some of the the financials on it. We've got a PE ratio of 12.04. They do pay a dividend um, of about 2%. So we're looking at 50 cents. That was just paid on uh, February 1st, actually. So uh, we'd be jumping on this one in time for the next quarter. And the analyst research, again, like I didn't really, this is kind of new for me, like just a whole new field. So I didn't know what made a good medical company or health company or whatever. But what stood out to me is you know, you, you look at their what I would assume is their biggest competitor in Walgreens, and it's trading at $50 a share. I'm like, oh, that's kind of a big difference. And all the analysts are, you know, hold, 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 nothing like go out and buy, nothing long. Um, something that that I, I thought was interesting and aggressive to be able to compete with with Amazon getting into the prescription game, um, and obviously just with Amazon giving, you know, you can get just about everything delivered from, you know, from a few clicks on your phone or on your computer. Um, so I'm taking this right from an article uh, January 31st of this year from Motley Fool or Fool.com. Uh, one thing to consider about CVS Health is that it acquired health benefits provider Aetna in 2018. Now, that, that was interesting to me. So they got into the, the actual insurance business. And when they did that, and I've actually seen this play out with uh, with 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 Aetna providers, or with with Aetna as a provider, they push all of those customers to fill their prescriptions with CVS. So by default, you've got I don't know uh, the Aetna twenty million members. Hey, there's twenty million customers we just picked up, um, and you make it more enticing to go through. CVS for your prescriptions. Um, and then another thing that they're doing, which Amazon can't compete with, is they're expanding their their in-store healthcare offerings. Now, again, prescription prices you could find, you can joust for them between Target, Walgreens, uh, Walmart, um, 
CVS, et cetera. But again, these these other things, foot traffic is obviously down uh, year over year with with the pandemic. But building up these these health hubs, as they're calling them, something where people can go and get care without having a full hospital visit or, you know, there was a time where I was I had just changed jobs and I didn't have insurance and I needed um, a sinus. I had a sinus infection. I rolled into, you know, at this point it was a Walgreens because CVS didn't have this. But walked in, and for fifty dollars, I got a prescription after being met, you know, after meeting with a nurse practitioner. Would have cost me hundreds of dollars to go in to a doctor's office, coupled with the cost of the prescription. So stuff like that is going to be great as we work to rebound from this uh, this pandemic and some of the the financial issues that it's caused, as well as again, they're differentiating themselves when it comes to looking at. Um, what a pharmacy can bring and what a convenience store can bring. Cause there's, you know, that's the other thing is you look at Walgreens and CVS, you, you kind of treat them as a, you can treat them as a convenience store, like slightly like a step up from pulling into a corner gas station. Cause you can get more items. Um, and I've done that a ton of times myself. Um, and then one other thing I did like as well as again, based on, um, Oh, I apparently got logged out. That's fine. Uh, based on analyst research and the average price target for CVS is $85.50. So that puts us at $12 worth of growth. Uh, again, projected with the high at 92. So there's a lot of upside, I would say, with this stock. Um, and again, I, it, it happened that they also pay dividends. It wasn't like a primary factor. It just worked out. They're like, hey, again, 2%, it's nothing huge, but money coming in. No, that that's awesome. And uh, if you guys check out the, the chat, I just – comparing CVS to Walgreens is a perfect task for Wolf, Wolfram Alpha. Um, so I just threw that in there. I, I am floored by how much healthier a company CVS is versus Wal, Walgreens. Um and before before this, like up to ten minutes ago, I thought that Walgreens was far bigger than CVS. Boy, not not true. Like CVS, their revenue, uh, I believe this is last year's financials, two hundred and sixty six billion versus one hundred and forty one billion for Walgreens. And then you know when you look at annual earnings per share, Walgreens negative eighty one cents, CVS six dollars and eight cents. So. Pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think CVS is pretty strong play in, in this sector for sure. And you know, to your point, yeah. I you know learned a lot about the company doing some research about it. Um, but I think we're in a part of the country that we, we have significantly more Walgreens stores than CVS stores because we're like an hour, hour and a half up the road from their headquarters. Um, but like nationwide on the whole, CVS is like far is it's it's the far bigger chain for sure so you know one question for you paul because uh, i i know th- what is cvs's presence outside the united states that is a valid question my friend that so i don't have the answer to off the top of my head yeah. and the only reason i ask that is because we, we talk about how cvs is a bigger company in terms of of financials but when, when i do a quick search um walgreens isn't just a um, just in the United States, they actually own a chain of pharmacies called Boots, which is huge in Europe. 
Oh, thus the name. They're, I think they're Walgreens. Walgreens Boots Alliance. Alliance. Yeah, Walgreens yeah. Boots Alliance. So, and I know from I know from like some of the the, the traveling I had done prior to 2020, right? Like anywhere I went in Europe, like uh, well, at least in uh, in the Netherlands and the United Kingdom for for sure, there were boots all over the place. <laughs> boots on the ground. <laughs> so so that's the only reason i ask right and you know fr- from the other numbers you, you uh you had pointed out like their earnings per share and everything you know cvs clearly sounds like a much healthier company um, and i gotta think that international expansion for a pharmacy has got to be a nightmare because mm-hmm. regulations are drastically different even even think like canada versus america you know if you've got yeah. Um, a fast food chain, incredibly easy to to throw a McDonald's up in in Canada, but totally different ballgame when it comes to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Here's so, a hypothetical I, that I have. Um, so you mentioned uh, um, Amazon wants to break into um, the pharmaceuticals, and I believe they bought out PillPack last year. And I think that's kind of their their jump into it. But here's just a hypothetical on my mind. Do you think Walgreens or CVS could be buyout potential for Amazon? It gets them brick-and-mortar presence, which they kind of have been interested in with Amazon Go. Um, and it gives them such strong presence then in the pharmacy game. That That's a good question. I... I you know I, I can't answer that. Part of me thinks no, there's no way. But then Amazon bought Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. You know they they they've got that that branch of them now that is on premises in brick and mortar stores. Um, yeah, I don't know. I that's that's a good that's a good question. Good thoughts. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And and you know I don't know how familiar you guys are with Amazon Go stores, but. Mm-hmm. I got to think that retrofitting a CVS would be pretty easy for their concept of the attendantless uh, convenience store. Well, and would it be, would Walgreens then be the more attractive option because they're a lower market cap, lower cost to, to acquire? Not that Amazon worries about money, but right. you know, just theoretically looking at it like that. Yeah. Well, the other thing to consider too, right? The typical American footprint of a Walgreens or a CVS, even in urban areas, they're huge. They're much larger than an Amazon Go store. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Paul, I don't know if you ever took a look at an Amazon Go store. When the last VMworld was in San Francisco, there were a couple of them um, in town. I know I kind of toured or kind of took a quick trip through one, but um, right, they're small. Like they're more like your typical convenience store size. So converting either a Walgreens or a CVS into something like that, it might be too early for something like that. Con- yeah. For that sort of concept. Did because you actually make a purchase there? No, I didn't. Okay. But I did, I did install the app and you know, it was, it was a real, it was a slick concept, what they were, what they're looking to do. The other thing to consider, you know, back to that point about, you know, international footprint, Right. Walgreens might be a better fit if Amazon wanted to convert locations to Amazon Go because the the international size pharmacy it, they're small like mm-hmm. they're like smaller than our typical convenience store 
and they, they you know they they stock fewer things like fewer options I should say, but that would be something that would much more easily convert to an Amazon Go style concept over our typical Walgreens or CVS. So is a Boots is that basically just like medicine and maybe a magazine rack? Is it like that size? It's it's I wouldn't even say that right. It's like a pharmacy. It you know that back corner of Walgreens where they have all the healthcare stuff. It's basically that it's a small pharmacist in like the corner and it's your, your typical back corner of Walgreens with like bandages and and other healthcare products just in a much smaller boy. And, and imagine that, imagine if you could automate a pharmacy, I mean, obviously you're going to still need a pharmacist on site Mm -hmm. for, for new prescriptions and stuff. But say I just wanted a prescription filled and, I didn't have time to go the online route. If you could just basically call in your order, go there and, and, and pick up your refill, just walk in, walk out. I mean, what a, what a great concept really. And and I think there are machines that exist now to do that, Mm. right? Where you could pre-stock, like it's like this giant robot vending machine concept where you've got your different, got your different medications in it. Obviously it's not as, you know, expansive as like a, a regular pharmacy with, with all their, uh, their floor space and shelf space. But like, I thought I saw it. It was like on one of those shows on the discovery channel where it's like how it's made. There's a robot that you put your medicines in and you could fill pill packets. Yeah. Your, like um, your, your buddy, uh, Eric Latart builds, uh, builds those pill vending machines. Doesn't he? Oh yeah. Uh, uh, Omni. Something like that. Yeah. Hey, shout out to Eric Latart. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just think it's an interesting idea to talk about. Um, I, I think that if Amazon did want to make more of a brick and mortar play, boy, I just see something like that, or maybe even a Seven Eleven as what they would go after. Mm-hmm. Cool, well, Paul, great pick. Um, yeah, uh, there, there, there's definitely a lot of positive upswings uh, when you when you think about a CVS and it's a safer play I would say it's basically a blue chip that pays a nice little dividend and it will probably be a, a slow growth great great pick for this week Sean you had pick number two I did and so uh, my pick uh, my segment this week was um, communication services or, or telecommunications um, so this segment obviously is kind of what underpins the modern economy, right? They, they build that infrastructure that allows us to do what we're doing right now. And so this is a space that it's kind of crowded with some real household names like AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, companies along that line, right? They're, they're delivering literal communication services. But the company that I'm going to pick is, while, while in that space, is probably not a household name for people outside of Wisconsin, it's it's a smaller company, and that company's TDS. It's formal name, Telephone and Data Systems. They are a, a telecommunications company headquartered out of Madison, uh, Madison, Wisconsin. They provide a lot of more regional-focused services. They own an IT uh, solutions provider, OneNeck. They own, they're actually majority owner of U.S. Cellular. They own 84% of the company. Uh, the other 16% is publicly traded under the symbol USM. What really got my attention with them is they're actually doing a lot of fiber network rollouts in, in Wisconsin. And they're 
investing heavily in their infrastructure to deliver that that next gen internet service to the home. Uh, and I think we can all say, right, living in Wisconsin, right, a lot of we're pretty much underserved when it comes to internet service offerings, right? Your our choices are what Spectrum, AT and T, um, and it's you know DSL or you know kind of decent you know, cable internet service. So the fact that they're rolling out fiber in, in a number of areas is, you know, is really showing that they're going to compete in, in the market, right? They have fiber rolled out in, in the Madison area. I know a few people who are customers of them. They just, they love it. They rave about the service. So I did some digging on them. Their, their finances look really good. They've been profitable. Um, they were profitable in 2019, so far up to 2020. Their results haven't come out yet. They're slated to come out the week of February 18th uh, for fiscal year 2020. But so uh, their results through three quarters, which ended September 30th, they were, you know, profitable to the tune of about 212 million through the end of the year on revenues of almost two and three quarters of a billion. So 2.75 billion is what they had in, in gross revenue. Net income was two point or 237 million out of that or excuse me, 212 million out of that net income available to common shareholders. Uh, their EPS is uh, for the their EPS for the trailing 12 months is 1.92. PE ratio for trailing 12 months is ten dollars in uh, or 10.73. So so they have a really good PE ratio. They're they're significant. They're below the industry average. Uh, they are a dividend stock. They have about a, a 3.2 percent uh, yield. Uh, on their on their share, so it's about sixty eight cents uh, per uh, per share per year. Yeah, so analyst reports look good. You know they are rated by Zacks as a buy. Now their market cap is only about two point two billion. They're about a tenth of the size of AT and T and Verizon. So they are a much smaller, much more regional, uh, much more regional player. But I think that gives them some opportunities because they they are able to be more focused and they are able to deliver a, a better service and which could lead to higher customer retention. Oh, and uh, what they're trading at today, uh, they closed at twenty fifty eight or twenty dollars fifty eight cents a share. They're uh, over their previous twelve months, their range has be, been between fourteen dollars five cents a share on the low end, twenty five dollars sixty one share uh, sixty one cents a share on the high end. So probably right in the middle of their range. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually looking at their chart right now. Um, they're pretty beat up from, from where their stock price was. Uh, obviously, you know, if you look way back, they had very strong performance during the, the, the dot-com boom of 2000 uh, up until 2007 then. Looks like they hit an all-time high. And then 2019, they've they've really they took a big dive, and they really haven't recovered yet. Um, so it it could be a very good opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I, I see this. Um, yeah, 2019 or 20 September 2018, they were trading at 35 dollars 73 cents a share. That was their high over the last five years, and yeah, now they're they're down. You know, about 15 dollars a share. But I see this really as a long-term opportunity, right? Telecommunications are just going to continue to be a key service for for our economy going forward, right? Even, you know, even after COVID ends, right? We're not all going back to the office. Mm -hmm. We're still going to need internet services. 
a, a smaller telecommunications company here um, that, that is much more regional focused has that ability to to deliver those those next gen services faster in some areas, right? They're not just going to be targeting the high, they're still going to be targeting high value markets, but their high value markets are not going to be the same as like an AT&T or Verizon where they're focused on just the largest cities. Yeah. And I know both AT&T and Verizon, they both are actually looking to shift from what's called a dummy pipe company, meaning they don't know what your conversation is about to a smart pipe. So that's kind of when AT&T, you know, they, they recently bought out HBO and DirecTV. They want to be a content provider rather mm-hmm. than a platform, and they want to know what you're doing with their data. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have any fears that TDS is going to fall behind and they won't have that in, same insight? Or do you think it's all right that they are going to be more of an infrastructure play? You know, I think it's all right that they're going to be an infrastructure play. I don't, I haven't really looked to see what their future plans are in terms of like content delivery or or content ownership. But at the end of the day, right, you you still need infrastructure in the ground. You still need people running that pipe. And if you look at what like Verizon and AT&T are doing in in the cell phone space, right, they're, they're still big providers but they're starting now to sell out their network mm-hmm. to smaller and regional companies that are more, you know, uh, you know, virtual network operators that, that are just using that infrastructure. Um, so I, I could see, you know, I could see a good infrastructure play, a solid infrastructure makes them a utility more than a telecommunication, a, a utility, I should say that provides telecommunication services, which just means that, you know, as long as they keep up with that investment, they're going to remain, you know, I would say, I would think they would remain profitable and provide a good return long-term. And the awesome thing about a company like that is if that is their only focus, once you've got that pipe in the ground and that infrastructure built out, you're you're printing your own money. You know, you just have maintenance cost at that point after everything is paid off. Um, That's partly why, you know, in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, why the cable companies were so profitable. They mm-hmm. built it out, and then they were just reaping the rewards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to, 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 to counter what AT&T and Verizon have done, I, I could even argue that they have not been very successful with, with their push into content. Time will tell on that one as well, though. But, uh, yeah. yeah, good play. You know, after the grilling Paul got, I was expecting more questions. <laughs> Do you think yeah, Amazon was... is going to buy out TDS? <laughs> <laughs> you know, nothing would surprise me anymore when it comes to Amazon, right? You know, some someday this may not be the United States of America. This may be the United States of Amazon. <laughs> they, they could buy out one of these eight data centers to increase their AWS uh, footprint. <laughs> No, I was sorry. I was reading, just doing a lot of reading about TDS and very interesting chart over the the lifetime of their uh, their stock. That uh, that you can see that dot com boom, the burst, the the uh, renaissance, the 08 crash. It's 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 kind of drastic, but no, I think it's it's an interesting play for sure. And it's interesting that they never really recovered from that. Oh, and. Uh, 
real quick, this what I'm seeing online is they're not Madison based, they're Chicago based. Oh, you're right. I think their headquarters are in Chicago now. Unless I was looking at one of their subsidiaries is There's Madison. a one neck data center in Madison. That yeah. could be it. But they definitely started in Wisconsin. Yeah. So I stand corrected on the Wisconsin based. They are, their headquarters as Paul, as you said, are in Chicago. That's also where US Cellular is headquartered. And again, they own eighty four percent of US Cellular. Um, you know, which is, you know, while not one of the big three in terms of mobile operators, you know, they still are a fairly decent sized and they are, you know, super regional, I think is how they're classified because of their, their footprint. So, yep. And across all of this, they are, they are fairly profitable. Yeah. And, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head with the need for fiber and, and the lack thereof in, in the Midwest. The, the West Coast really was very lucky where their infrastructure was built out a little bit later and they could kind of plan for that. Mm-hmm. Um, Midwest and East Coast, it's it's a hundred year old copper and we're just we're just not set up for it yet. So <laughs> can keep our or, fingers crossed or it's coax that was run in the mid 90s. Do you worry that? there won't be a need for fiber or a place for fiber with, with 5g rollout. You know, throughout the Midwest, I think there will always be a need for fiber because a lot of the 5g technologies are so short ranged that, you know, when you get out to, you know, think about Racine, right? Racine doesn't have that population density that New York has, right? You're still going to need something, you're still going to need fiber or you're still going to need some sort of infrastructure to carry data services. And if I'm going to run a bunch of 5G, you know, the 5G nanometer wave or whatever it is that Verizon was advertising last week during the Super Bowl, Super Bowl right, if I'm going to be running that, I might as well just run fiber to the home at that point. Why rely on a wireless service for, for my average home network needs? Especially as we're back in this, you know, we're, we're in this work from home. Work from home is not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm still going to need something stable for internet. And the only way I would really worry about um, 5G supplanting fiber for the average customer outside of an urban core is if there were no data caps, right? All of the 5G services are essentially, you know, they say they're unlimited data, but that's a soft unlimited. Once you exceed a certain amount, they usually throttle you. To be fair, AT&T also does that on their DSL and, and you know, U-verse, yep. right? Yeah, Comcast does that. So a- any any company that doesn't put a data cap on, especially for, for utility-style services, is probably going to be fairly successful as long as they can have good customer service. And real quick on the technical side, 5G has a um, a range from the tower of a few hundred feet up to 1,500 feet unobstructed, whereas a single fiber cable can go 2,000 meters or 6,561 feet. So you're getting five times the distance. So to Sean's point about less populous areas, fiber will be far more useful versus a, a new tower every how many feet. <laughs> so with 5G under the best conditions, you need a node every 1,500 feet? 
I am no expert, but yes, there's uh, some distance concerns when it comes to five G. I knew it was low, but I guess yeah, I didn't realize it was in that territory. Even if we're even if we're off by a margin of fifty percent, that's still low. How about how about this, Sean? You said you wanted you wanted some tough ones, Starlink and uh, Elon Musk. All right, yeah, great question. Um, yeah, I didn't even think about Starlink. Um, Starlink is probably going to be the biggest competitor to any of the any of the telecommunication services going forward. Yeah, if, if they um, can deliver the latency that they're saying. Yeah. The, their challenge, though, is going to be latency and bandwidth because there's only mm-hmm. so much bandwidth you can fit on on that on that uh, segment of carrier that they or carrier wave that they have. And you are still going up to low Earth orbit and back down to -hmm. some sort of base station. There is going to be a latency penalty for most users, especially in remote areas, right? When you start getting really out into the country, right? You go north of Highway 10 and you're outside of like Antigo and Shano. Starlink is going to be great for up there because the cost for running fiber to a lot of those homes up there is going to be, you know, it's not going to be worth it, right? You're not going to recap that investment in, you know, in a reasonable time period. Starlink is going to be perfect there for, for again, you're more suburban or like you're, you're closer in rural areas, you're, you're suburban, your urban areas. I'm not sure. Star, Starlink may make a great backup link. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how it's going to be for, you know, your, your day-to-day internet usage, especially if you're working in, you know, real-time communication, right? If you're doing what we're doing, I'm not sure how Starlink will do for video conferencing. Again, I haven't tested the service. I don't know. I'm only thinking about what does it take to get a signal up to a satellite and then back down to Earth and then to its destination. So apparently they've got it down to 20 milliseconds, which, so just to, I guess, enlighten folks with, with the technical behind it, that's the difference between the to and fro so if you're talking about having a real-time conversation with somebody, mm-hmm. there's a latency of 20 milliseconds or a fifth of a second between um, the up and the down link. So that should, uh, if, if it stays true to that, that should be in the sweet spot for teleconferencing and two-way communications. Yeah, I'm curious about that, though, under what mm-hmm. those test conditions were. And where yeah. those base stations are, um, and how it's routing that traffic, because you know I think about, and, and this is probably a bad example, right? But airplane Wi-Fi, right? Yeah, it's K and KU band satellite internet. It's fairly high bandwidth, but the latency, right? You're still going up to low Earth orbit and coming back down. The latency on that it can be terrible, depending on where you are. So. I guess we'd have to see, you know, more real world information on that and, you know, not necessarily idealized tests, but, you know, somebody in the backwoods of Canada using Starlink, you know, to have a video conference and, and what that experience is like. Do you yeah. know, and I'm, I'm only asking because I know that uh, we're nerds who like to get down into the details. Do you have any idea like what the average latency on a fiber connection is? It's going to depend on the distance. Yeah. Really. Right. You know, the, the latency is really dictated by the speed of light in, in all cases, right? Like, you know, how fast does light travel through that medium? How far is it going? So it's, it's going to depend on what the distance is between the, 
the, the customer edge and, and that termination point. Sure. So, yeah, kind, usually, kind of a loaded question. It's pretty fast. It's, you know, a couple milliseconds. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, well, I think a couple of very interesting picks this week. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Jeremy, do you have anything to, to add to that? I know you've been on, on mute quite a bit. Well, I just uh, want to add to the uh, the fray of the, um, you know, the, what do you call it, uh, the noise floor. Don't want to uh, ruin the flow of the conversation. That was, yeah, that was way out there. I had no, I had nothing to add to that. <laughs> so as, as we wrap up this episode, I do want to throw out one correction that I'm going to have to, it's, it's too late now because it's on five previous episodes, but I've been uh, misquoting our Twitter handle. Our Twitter handle is at mon- at Money Badger ASOC. Um, I had been saying Money Badger ASSOC, which is not correct. So that's that's something that will be fixed in the uh, little outros going forward. But yeah, I've been just telling people to follow us on a Twitter handle that didn't exist. Hopefully, you found us. Um, <laughs> so that's just an opportunity to get that Twitter handle. It's uh, one too many letters. Yeah, that's that's right. When when we were when we were talking about it we we planned on doing uniform all across the board and twitter was the last one that i actually went to do and uh hit that that character cap so kind of had to get a little creative with that yeah so once again ladies and gentlemen it's at money badger asoc on twitter maybe what we should do moving forward is change all the other socials to match that one. Uh, I mean, we could. There's just a lot a lot of things out there. But, I mean, everything yeah. else right now... Oh, I've got the wrong podcast notes up. I almost started commenting <laughs> about a different account, different show's accounts. <laughs> we have MoneyBadgers, A-S-S-O-C at gmail.com. On Instagram, at MoneyBadgersASSOC. Uh, Facebook, you can find us at money, Facebook.com slash MoneyBadgersAssociates. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's out there. And I think again, when you search money badgers associates after, you know, we get more than what are we sitting at today? Five followers. It'll start to uh, populate on its own when people start searching. <laughs> Four of those are us. And one is my grandma. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, that, that's all I have for this week. Again, we love feedback. We love content ideas. Um, and again, if you, if you want to correct us on all the things I'm sure we got wrong in the past few weeks, uh, go ahead and reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Um, again, email's great. Moneybadgersassoc at gmail.com. And most social media sites we exist on. Cool. Are, is that, uh, are we good there? Yeah, I'm cool with that. This week's episode of the Money Badgers Associates is brought to you by Pool Sharks, where the buyer is our chum. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Fun with Fundamentals. I'm your host, Paul Woodward. In investing, you can pick out an individual stock, or you can look at something called an ETF, or an exchange-traded fund. So what exactly is an exchange-traded fund? It is a collection of securities that trades on an exchange, as its name would indicate, just like any other security. 
So the fun thing about uh, ETFs is the securities that are included in the ETF can be stocks, bonds, or commodities. Um, And they can be composed of a similar grouping of sector stocks, such as tech, or an entire index. Um, The one that actually I, I, full disclosure, I own some is uh, SPY, and that trades the entirety of the S&P 500. It's one of the more well-known ETFs out there. And what's nice with the with the ETFs is they give you some good benefits, include lower expenses and fees than trying to purchase all of the individual stocks on your own. Uh, and it, it also gives you diversification in the case of, say, the, the SPY ETF, because you've got different companies, different market caps, etc., all in one exchange-traded fund. And then they can also be managed. There are two types of ETFs. They're either passive managed or active managed. The one consideration when looking at the two different types of managed ETF, active management uh, ETFs are going to have higher fees because there's somebody actively in there making sure to keep an eye on the stocks at all time and moving things around to keep things balanced and make sure that the ETF is continuing to be profitable. And one final piece of information about ETFs is that Unlike mutual funds, their price changes throughout the trading day no different than any other security. A a mutual fund has its value set at the end of the day after trading has ended. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. The Money Badgers Associates podcast is created and produced by Money Badgers Associates, LLC, edited by Jeremy Koleski. And while we like to think we know what we're talking about, the Money Badgers Associates podcast is for entertainment purposes only. As always, please consult a financial advisor before making any financial decisions.